0: I wanna to talk to you about, about Molly. Molly's a beagle, and um, my wife found this. Somebody sent it to her on Facebook. A guy writes that my girlfriend doesn't like my beagle, Molly, so I have to rehome her. She's a purebred from a wealthy area, and I've had her for four years. She likes to play games. She's not totally trained and her hair does get everywhere. She loves having her nails done. She tends to stay up all night yapping and sleeps while I work. She eats only the best food, but will never greet you at the door after a long day or give you unconditional love when you're down. She doesn't bite, but she is meaner than a junkyard dog. So if anybody's interested in my 30-year-old, selfish gold-digging girlfriend, come and get her. Me and Molly want her rehomed as soon as possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> I love that. I've never, thought, I've never heard that phrase, having my wife or my girlfriend rehomed. That's a, that's a good phrase. We, we were in a series called um, An Unlikely Hero. And so we have taken time to look at David's life as a shepherd boy before he was even anointed. We've looked at his life as a giant killer. We've looked at his life as a man who ran for years from a crazy king just trying to stay alive. We've looked at his life as the king and and today I want to look at a chapter of his life that is actually pretty nasty. It's a it's a it's a great and terrible story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Okay. When we are looking at the people stories of the Bible, I think it is really understand, it's really important to understand to keep things in perspective. You see, the the the, the these people that the scriptures are talking about, that the Bible is 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 not primarily anthropological that's a really fancy word for it's not about primarily about people it is not primarily a history book although it is full of history and it's full of people the bible is primarily a book about god okay that's why he doesn't the the scriptures have no problem portraying heroes like they really are full of blemishes well while it's true that they, 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 they there are clearly times when God uses them profoundly and and then they have these super supernatural moments and seasons in their life, but they have as many what was I thinking moments as you and I all right The scripture doesn't pull any punches when it comes to these characters, it doesn't hide their flaws. It doesn't hide their warts. And in fact, I'm not even sure I'd want to be in the Bible because the the, the Bible puts these people on display in front of us in their full humanity so that we can identify with their brokenness. And then, so they can point us to the redeeming work of God. And so I think it's important that, that we have to look at David's life and we have to look beyond how his life can inspire us to how his life points to Jesus. And then we need to allow the story to inform our response to Jesus. Timothy Keller really, in his you know in the years that he's been teaching and, and stuff, really, really helped me to understand how all of these things they're, they're powerful to the degree that they point to Jesus so that we can find our response in Christ, to Christ. And so this talk is, is about the power of sin, it's about the consequence of sin, and it's about the forgiveness of sin, okay? Let's get at it. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It's a pretty steamy passage. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, that's the commander of his army, out with the king's men, with the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba or Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, and some of your translations might read one afternoon, David got up from his bed and he walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, He saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. All right, this, this coming into this story, David is at absolutely the top of his game. He's in his late forties, in his early fifties and He is experiencing unprecedented success. No one in Israel has ever seen a man this powerful before. Their army is is undefeated. Their army is stronger and more powerful than they've ever been. Israel's borders have, have advanced and pushed out and they've taken territories and the money and the money is just pouring into the nation. Because every time they conquer a, a, a territory or a nation, they, they, they take them on as vassal nations and they charge them taxes. And so the money comes pouring in and Israel is rich and large and living large. But the narrative about David, if you're looking carefully, you will see that that for there are hairline cracks that have gone ignored for years, actually even decades. There are things that were going on in his life that the Bible doesn't draw a lot of attention to, but it says that it shows it, that they are there. And one of those hairline fractures that's going to pose a problem is the Bible says that David took for himself many wives and many concubines. Now a concubine just for those of you and I know not everybody's familiar with that term. A concubine is not something you you bring in the harvest with, okay? That's called a combine, okay? Concubines can gather wheat, but they take a long time to do that, okay? A concubine is a woman. A concubine is a woman from ancient eastern cultures. Who a man, I don't even know who came up with the idea, but a man would take the woman and he could have sex with her as much as he wanted. And she would okay, she would sign up for this because he also provided for her needs. And after having enough sex without drugstores closed, you would have children. And so the man would get children from the thing, he would get sex from the thing, and she would get her needs met. I know, it sounds wrong. But... For David, his concubines increased his prestige because they gave him many, many male children, which was significant and obviously limitless opportunities to indulge in sexual pleasure. And somewhere in the middle of all of his successes, all of his victories, all of those battles that were fought and won, David forgot what God had commanded concerning kings in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. The Bible says that concerning kings, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. He shall not multiply wives for himself or his heart will turn away from God. The the Old Testament is full of polygamy. I mean, many of the key characters of the Old Testament are polygamists. But these, the fact that they had more than one wife was kind of the influence of the culture on them. It was not God's will for them. The Bible is very clear in Genesis chapter one that God created one man for one woman for a lifetime of monotony. Uh, monogamy, for a lifetime of monogamy, monogamy. That's it. One man for one woman. I thought that was really funny too. You know, you're better than the morning crowd. They were just like, just slept through that whole thing. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God is saying to the kings, don't do it. Don't do it because you see, yeah, they're beautiful, but you know what? There's baggage attached to all that beauty. They will drag their gods. They will drag you away from your God. They will drag their gods into your home. Don't do it. But David took for himself many wives and many concubines. And then, you know how the sins of the father go from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and often... If the one generation does not repent of their sins and does not come clean, and I'm not talking about just feeling sorry for their sin, but walk away from their sin, it is amped up, it moves to the next generation, not the same level, but to the 10th power. And you see this with David's son, Solomon. David, do you know what? He walked in this way and his son watched him live his life the way he lived his life. And he took it to a whole new level. God had blessed Solomon. He gave him a wisdom beyond any man on the earth. He gave him wealth beyond any man on the earth. He, he gave him peace on all of his borders. You'd think that that was enough to work with. And this is the epitaph of the man's life. At the end of his life, this is all they said about him. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away from God. His wives turned his heart away from God. And so in 2 Samuel, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men. See, in these cultures, you know, somehow, you know, you you pick a fight there's a smart time to pick a fight and a stupid time to pick a fight. You pick a fight in the middle of winter. Well, it is a rainy scene. It's cold out. It's rainy. Your, your chariots get bogged down. Your horses don't work as efficiently. And so these kings were smart enough to wait for the weather to get nice before they went to war. And it was a time at which then they would begin to take more territory. It's a time at which they would defend their territory. It seems to make perfect sense. And it's very likely that David was still the greatest military commander in Israel. But for some reason he decided to sit this one out. And verse two says that he wakes up from his afternoon nap and he goes for a walk around his house. You get a sense he's bored. He's got his house coat on, his slippers, just wandering the halls. You get a sense, that, 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 then he goes up onto the roof, and their roofs were their decks. And he's wandering around his house he says, above everybody else's house. He's wandering around with a bored soul. And let me tell you something, with a bored soul, you are a dangerous place. When I'm bored, my sin rate goes up significantly. Significantly, because my brain goes places it shouldn't go. I get bored. And then you use anything to fill your boredom. And it's usually not something you should be filling your boredom with. It's true. I, what is it? Idle hands are the devil's playground. A bored heart, I promise you, is a dangerous place. And so David's palace is above everything else. He's wandering around the roof, and he sees a very beautiful woman. Now, the Bible is very clear here. This term, very beautiful, it's only used of very few women in the, in the Bible. Sarah was one. But this woman was stunning. Stunning. Very beautiful. Set her apart from most other women. And it didn't hurt that she was very naked. Because that also set her apart from most other women at that moment in time. Because she's taking a bath. And I'm thinking about it. This is the perfect setup. This is the perfect trap for a bored king. He should have been in the battlefield. He should have been focused on something else. Instead, his bored soul focuses on a beautiful woman living next door. And he becomes obsessed with her. Have you ever been obsessed? You just can't think about anything else. And the more you think about them, the bigger they are. And the more you think about them, they grow inside of you. And then pretty soon, there is nothing else except for that which you obsess about. It's because whatever has the power to hold your, your focus has the power to dominate everything. And David is focused. And he sent someone to find out about her. You know, we would just creep them out on Facebook, right? And that's easier. We don't need servants. We can just do that ourselves. But he sent somebody to find out and the servant comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And the wife of Uriah. Now, when she says she's the daughter of Eliam, that you almost always introduce someone in the context of their uh, bloodline, in the context of their father. That was very culturally normal. What is culturally not uh, the norm is to mention that she's married and her husband's name is Uriah. But I think this servant knows the king. He he knows the king and he knows David. When it gets around the ladies, he 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 some has bad boundaries. And so this this servant is going, he he is Uriah. You know Uriah? Uriah is one of your mighty men. You know in in the earlier passage it says that he sent Joab out with the king's men and the entire Israelite army? The king's men were this this elite team of warriors that were with David from the time he was running away from Saul. This elite team of warriors that actually he surrounded himself with. It's one of the reasons he was so effective in battle. Uriah is one of his closest um, brothers in arms. It's like the servant is saying, dude, you cannot do this. If you do this, you're, 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 you're having sex with, you're committing adultery while he is at war. You cannot do this. But obs- David is obsessed with her and David wants what he wants. And he calls for her and has sex with her. And just just like that. Sounds like they didn't even get the front door the way it writes it, but I'm sure they did. He calls for her and he has sex with her. Now think about this. Think about this. David... the, the, The text tells us he had many wives and many concubines, right? Many wives. He is getting a lot of action. He's getting as much action as he could possibly want. Does he need any more variety? He's got his own harem. I don't think this is about variety. You know what I think this is about? He sees beauty that he does not have. And he wants it. He sees beauty that he doesn't have. He sees beauty that he shouldn't have. He sees beauty that doesn't belong to him. But David wants what David wants, and he is the king. Nobody should have what he wants. And he takes it. We're like this. You know that, right? This is you, and this is me. We want what we want. Usually we're pretty good. You know what? got what I want, I, you know, cars running fine, wife's running fine, the yard's running fine, you know what, my peeps are running fine, everything's fine. Until I see something, I see beauty that I don't have. Am I right? I see beauty that I don't have and I reach for it, I take it. It's airbrushed, it's on the internet, it's fantastic. I've never seen that kind of beauty, because it doesn't exist. We see beauty we don't have, and we we obsess over it. We obsess over it, and we fantasize about it, and it gets bigger and bigger. It doesn't even have to be a person. It can be a thing. How many of you just needed that car so badly that it just you, you you saw beauty you didn't have, and so you began to obsess about it. And you don't you when, when you begin obsessing, especially when it comes to sex or romance or relationship, your brain leaves. Elvis has left the building. Oh, you are you are obsessed. I gotta have it. You know, one of the great lies of our culture, so simple, but we still believe it, is we say that, you know, if I could just get as much sex as I could get in any way I can get it, then I will be sexually satisfied. And we all know that it doesn't work because you just get sexually ignited. And the problem is, while you're being sexually ignited, you're beginning to adjust downward and, and beginning to, 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 d- to desire and long all kinds of debased ways of fulfilling that desire. And it becomes unnatural, and it becomes destructive, and it becomes broken. Second 2 Timothy 2, 2 says to, to your only hope is to flee youth for lust. The only hope is to flee youth for lust. But it's not talking about just running away going ah I can't stand it ah. It's talking about running to something. Running to the presence that will satisfy your soul. Running to the heart of one will not reject you. Running, running to righteousness, running into his presence, running to his face, running to him. But David's done none of the above. And, and then he gets word she's pregnant. And this is where, when you think about the greatest military mind in Israel um, actually goes to mush. Becomes, he comes up with a three-point plan that is stupid. It is just plain stupid. The first is he decides, okay, she's pregnant. Somehow I got to make sure that I don't get blamed for this, even though it's my fault. And so he sends for Uriah to come from the battlefield. Under the guise that he just wants, David just wants to get an update how things are going. And so Uriah comes and David and him are having dinner and they're talking. So how's it going? Yeah. Ah, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, we're okay, yeah, okay. Hey, good, love you, buddy. Hey, thanks for coming in. Hey, listen, uh, um, why don't you take the night off? Why don't you go over there and use my shower? Clean up, because you stink. I got some new clothes sitting over there, and why don't you go home to the little lady and have a little cuddle time and wink, wink, have some time to yourself, and then head back. But Uriah, he goes from David's presence And instead of going to his wife and to the comfort of his home, he goes down into the servant's quarter, which is a very large kind of a... And he spends the night with all the servants. And the next morning, David's going, what is your problem? Why didn't you go home? And this is Uriah's reply. He said, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab, my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, you live, I will not do such a thing. Whoa, what a guy. What a a stand-up guy. And then David comes up with bonehead plan two, which is actually plan one with one small, simple little adage. He brings them back for dinner that night and this time he gets him blitzed. He gets him drunk. And while Uriah's drunk, David slowly pushes him in the direction of his own house. But Uriah goes back to the servants, quarters and passes out. Ugh. And then David goes to plan C. And plan C is such, such a, 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 a drastic move. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab. And he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and he will die. And he seals it and he puts this death wish or this death warrant in Uriah's hand and he said, Take it to the front. And Uriah dies. How do you do that? How do you kill a man to cover your own sin? Whatever happened to the faithful, pure heart of a boy in a sling who was a man after God? What happened to that guy? He's become corrupt and evil and self-preserving. Can you see how one act, this one step too far, this one act of adultery is now spiraling downward to the place where David doesn't even know who he is, does not even know who he is. This is the same guy, by the way, who wrote Psalm 40. Listen to this. This is the exact, right now I know you hate him, right? You despise this guy, but be very careful because he is you. This is the same guy who wrote Psalm 40, verse eight. I desire, this is genuine worship. He said, Father, I desire to do your will. My God, your law is within my heart. That's his heart. That's his heart. And this is his action. You you know what that tells us? It tells us Jeremiah was absolutely right. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure. Who can understand it? You and I share that same heart. Don't think for a second that I would never do that. I could never do that. that. I would never cross that line. Because in Psalm 40, here's a guy who's absolutely in love with God, worshiping God, embracing the words of God. And by Psalm 51, he has done this terrible thing. Let me say something about your sin. Deal with your sin addictions when they are acorns, when they are seeds. You take a small acorn and you sow it into, and David's heart was fertile, I mean, the one thing we know is this guy was tuned to to the Father. He was tuned to his own feelings. This guy's in incredibly good soil. And you take an acorn and you put it in good soil, and you know what you get? You don't get one oak tree, you get a forest of oak trees. It's one thing to pull an acorn out of the ground before it's really taken root. It is another thing to rip an oak tree out. Do you know how big of a hole, a full-grown oak tree leaves when you pull it out of the ground? David does. Read the rest of the story. What happened to him? And by the time this, this, this whole thing is over, it has left a gaping hole in his family, a gaping hole in the nation, a gaping hole in his kingship. So Uriah dies and David doesn't waste any time and he marries Bathsheba. And about 10 months goes by. And you're thinking, well then it's all good. Everything's good now. Everything everything is good. Are you kidding? David has to somehow deal with his treachery. David has to somehow deal with himself. And for 10 months, he is just so aware of everything that has just happened and what he's done and who he's becoming. But, but every day he goes to work. And you know what the king used to do when he went to work? Um, when he's at home in the palace, he would sit on his throne and the people would bring to him cases, court cases, disputes. And then he would judge them using the Mosaic law. And he said, this is I'll decide this for you and I'll decide that for you. And that's what he would do. One day, a guy by the name of Nathan comes and says, I have a story to tell you. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. First, second Samuel 12 says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich men had very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb that he bought, he raised it, and it grew up with his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, David's wearing his king hat and he's listening to this story and he begins to burn with anger, the Bible says, against the man and said to Nathan, surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan looks at him and he points his finger at his face and he said, you, sir, are the man. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you to be the king. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And if that wouldn't have been enough, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You, sir, are the heartless one. You are the one without pity. You are the one that deserves to die by his own judgment. And in this moment, he finally sees it. In this moment, and maybe for the first time, he sees himself for what he's become. And the weight of his own sin comes down. And he says, oh God, I've sinned against the Lord. And out of this incredibly breaking moment, David prays this prayer, Psalm 51. The story I've just told you is the historical context for Psalm 51. And we read it so quickly, we, we brush over it like it's, like it's, 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 it's a beautiful song. But it's a, it's a prayer of absolute anguish. He goes... Have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I love this. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. It's all I think about. It has darkened my soul. I can't rid myself of it. I can't clean my conscience of it. It is like a black shadow inside of me. In verse 10, he says, and create in me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. But he said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you know what God's response to him was? The Lord has taken your sin away, David. The Lord has taken your sin away. I'm going to invite Mark and Tina Marie and the band to come up. Could you imagine those words, hearing those words, how they healed his deepest fear, his greatest fear, because David knew what a king looks like when God withholds his presence. He looks crazy. He acts crazy. It's what Saul was. It's what David saw. By the way, Saul... And David are the same. It's just when the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul and given to David, that same anointing that made Saul amazing is now what made David. Don't confuse that one is evil and one is good. They are the same. They are human hearts. One is now being informed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by the presence of God. And so David says, please don't take your presence away from me. David knows what it looks like for a king. To lead without the Holy Spirit. He's crazy. You see, David begged God not to take from him what he cherished most, which was God's presence and which was the Holy Spirit. When we look at this, have you noticed, as we've been reading through the Old Testament and looking at these different characters, that all these good guys are just bad guys? All the good guys are bad guys. But that's actually very good news for you and for me. Because even on our best day, we deserve hell. Even when you bring your A game, you cannot cure the human heart with human resources. Without the Holy Spirit... Without his presence, we are absolutely lost. Without the restoring, forgiving grace of God, we are lost. We look and we act like Saul. We look and we act like a crazy person. As we look at this part of David's life, we see that He knows that even of himself, he can't do it. And so he says, Father, come and do what I can't do. And if you are in here today and you're stuck, you're stuck in your sin and you have willed it out, there's no human cure for the human heart. You can will it out. You can promise yourself, come hell or high water, but unless the Holy Spirit comes and moves on your soul and brings you to this place where he says, I love this, he prayed, he said, um, um, make, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. That's been my new prayer. Make me willing to obey you. Cause I am so weak in my willingness. And so if you've come here and you're stuck, you can pretend you're not, or you can say, Father, I've sinned against you. And you know what God's response will be? He'll reach back to you in mercy, and he will say to you, the Lord has taken your sin away you know why God sent Nathan? Not to condemn David, but to set him free. Not to condemn him, but to set him free. Because So often you cannot see your sin. You can't see your own crap. You can't see your own brokenness. You can't see how you lie to yourself until something outside of you says, you're the man. You are that man. You are the selfish one. You are the broken one. And then we see it, and then our response is to say, Father, forgive me, for I've sinned against you. Father, restore the joy of my salvation. So I'm gonna pray. And I'm gonna pray a prayer for me. And I'm gonna pray a prayer for you, because I think we all need this one. And I'm just believing that the Holy Spirit has got you so aware of your need for God have mercy on me oh God according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion dear God blot out my transgressions so many transgressions and wash away all of my iniquity. Cleanse me, oh God, of all of my sin. There's just so much. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And create in me a clean heart And renew in me a loyal spirit, a a spirit of of a boy in a sling with a man after God's own heart. Renew to me that kind of loyalty. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Father, we give this up to you as a fragrant offering. And we thank you and we receive by faith your beautiful grace. We receive by faith your beautiful forgiveness. We receive by grace, Father, a washing, a renewing, a transforming. We receive by faith, Father, we cannot fix ourselves. We are in desperate need. of a way maker.